What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Normal Guy Lazy Eye Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jared Magazine. We're sitting down, we're chatting with people who have much cooler stories than just a normal guy with your, uh, with a lazy eye. We got a we got a really good episode today, and I think we have a really good few episodes coming up. So the next few episodes, I wanted to keep it very Boston, uh, Massachusetts themed. So without further ado, this week's episode is actually going to be a renowned individual in the Boston area, restaurateur and co-owner of Kane's Donuts. Paul Delios is here. And this was one of one of the coolest interviews that we've done because I, I just got to sit back and listen to an incredible story of a young Greek boy growing up in a very very food oriented family you know parents love to cook grandparents love to cook and it obviously rubbed off on paul and then obviously when we got into the conversation about canes i was just blown away by some of the stories that we were hearing um one thing that I admire about Cane's, besides the fact that it has probably the best donut I've ever tried, sorry, uh, to any of the donut shops that I've been to, but these this is really uh, unmatched in my opinion. They take gluten-free so seriously, and they were one of the first to really like dive right into that, and I, I admire that. So really cool story about that, and then if you get to the point where he calls uh, a specific donut a roll with a hole... Uh, I think it's going to get you to laugh a little bit. So without further ado, here is a very fun, uh, heartwarming interview with the one and only Paul Delios. This is the Normal Guy Lazy Eye Podcast, a true eye-opening experience. All right, fair warning. If you're listening to this, be ready to crave some donuts. Paul Delios is the renowned Boston chef, restauranteur, and co-owner of Massachusetts Gem, Boston's original handcrafted donut shop for over 65 years, Kane's Donuts. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? Thank you for having me on, Jared. Uh, I'm doing very well this morning. Um, I I could talk about anything that you'd like. Uh, we could go into my early career uh, when I had restaurants, or do you want to jump right into Kane's Donuts? You... Well, we got we got to start at the beginning, right? Every story has a beginning, so we'll definitely start there. Right. Kind of, can you share a little bit with us about where you grew up and life in the Delios household? I grew up uh, middle child amongst five kids, um, humble beginnings. Dad worked uh, over the years from early morning till. Uh, early evening, roughly putting in uh, 12 to 16 hour days. Um, So we got that as an example for a work ethic in my family. And when I was a young boy um, at the age of four, I would see dad marching off to work. He had a little diner in Chelsea uh, in Bellingham Square. It was called Tony Spas. And my older brother and my older sister would go with him. And I wanted to go because, you know, hey, everybody else is going. Right. So I'd wake up in the morning and and the routine was, you know, dad would take us kids with him. Um, then we'd go pick up my grandfather and we'd go into Chelsea and into the diner where um, early in the morning, uh, my grandfather would go in the back just to make sure there wasn't any uh, little four-legged critters running around. 
and because uh, you know that's the way things were years ago. Sure, absolutely. Uh, after all that stuff was taken care of, um, you know, and the traps and so forth were cleaned out, uh, Dad would pull us down from the counter because he would sit us up all on top of the counter, and he would bring us down. And then my grandfather would set the uh, potatoes uh, on top of the stove and start cooking those for the home fries. He'd boil the potatoes. Yeah. In the meantime, the gentleman from uh, Katz's Bagels would come walking in and hang the uh, rope of bagels. There was 12 bagels on, there were 12 bagels on, on the, the little strings and they had a dowel sticking out of the wall and he would hang the, the, the bagel strings on there basically which was right next to the griddle, cut that, put a bagel on the uh, griddle for me and make me a cup of tea and then put a smear of cream cheese on there and I'd be good to go. I'd have that for my breakfast. <laughs> I'd say you probably had the best breakfast of any four year old. bagels were unbelievable. So it was, it, <laughs> um, and then I, I fall asleep for a little bit of a nap in mm-hmm. booths after I had breakfast. Mm-hmm. Grandfather would wake me up. I'd go in the back with him and He'd flip over a metal bucket. They don't have those now. <laughs> kind of like a uh, a big version of like a metal paint can. Sure. Um, and that's what the food used to come in, different metal buckets. I'd sit atop of that and start helping uh, my papu, and that's what we say in Greek, papu. I'd help papu peel the potatoes for the home fries. And while I was doing that, he'd be fixing the roasts and the different things that they were going to sell that day, spicing them up and so forth. Um, later on, when I got done, I went out front with my older sister and we'd receive in the different newspapers that Boston was selling at the time. There was the globe, there was the Herald, there was the record, there was the American, the traveler. Um, you know, I I don't recall them all, but there was like different newspapers and Mr. Fusey used to come in. I remember his name, uh, with the table talk pies, there were a wooden box, and the, the pies were all in slots. He'd come in, bring those in. And I remember when customers would come in, we had a little wooden board that would fit underneath my hand. It had a, a leather strap on top. You slide your hand in, put that on top of the pie, flip the pie over and take the metal tin off because those were a 25-cent deposit. And you let the customer get those. Right. Then you took like yeah, almost like an egg carton material that was the that was the pie plate. You flipped it back over, then you put that in the box. And I think the pie was maybe like twenty five cents or something at the time. Right. Like a table talk pie, um, and donuts were cheap back then. Everything was cheap back then. Right. You no know, right. food was inexpensive, but you know at the time you didn't make big paychecks either. So you know I guess it's all relative. Um, you know, so that was that was kind of the uh, the the you know the start of my uh, foray into the food business. I am fortunate that I had a grandfather on my mom's side that was a prof- professionally trained chef from France. Um, you know, he came from Greece, went to France, he interned over there. And then when he got to the States, you know, I, I would kind of watch everything that he was doing, but I didn't have him around for that long. Mm-hmm. But my granddad on my father's side was around. And, uh, but I always, for some reason, I always took a liking to to cooking and food. Um, I started making my own pizzas and things at a young age, Um, you know, baked scallops, all of that stuff. My mother was like, where did you come from? (laughs) I, you know, 
I knew enough when I was a young kid to take scallops and put them in a in a buttered dish. I would put a little butter down. I put the scallops in, then I put a little bit of cream on top of that, and 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 breadcrumbs or Ritz crackers. And she was like, you know, I don't understand how you know this. And a lot of things just came natural for me. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just like instinct. Almost. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I feel like growing up with that many cooks in the kitchen, you kind of get a, 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 a kind of that that cooking gene early and often. Did would you say that you had any other like dreams as a kid other than becoming a chef or be owning your own restaurant? Was there anything else that really drew you to something other than food and what your what your grandparents were doing and what your parents were doing? Well, um, I don't think I really dreamt about being a chef. That wasn't like, you know, my big aspiration about becoming a, becoming a chef. Um, I didn't dream about it. I didn't even give it a second thought. I always figured that I'd go to school and either become like an accountant or an architect or, mm. or, or a lawyer, uh, something like that, because the folks were always like, well, you know, you need to go to college and so forth. As it turned out, I had gone to school and became a, uh, a quality engineer, and I worked in the computer industry. Um, really kind of boring. <laughs> Did not yeah. like it. Yeah. Caught <laughs> um, a lot of traveling while I was doing it. Sure. Got to go to the uh, the Midwest and uh, went out to California and a couple of different places, but uh, wasn't something that really excited me, you know, as far as a career goes. Um, my mom and dad, by that time, uh, had a donut shop in Lynn, which started in 1933. It was called Mrs. Foster's, mm. and um, we had gotten out of the diner uh, by like 1968. And we went into that donut shop. My my dad and my uncle uh, purchased it, went in there, and and my dad um, started pumping out all the donuts. Of course, he made donuts at the diner, too, and he made muffins at the diner. Um, so he kind of took all the old recipes that he was doing there and brought them into Mrs. Foster's and really pushed the envelope as far as that, that uh, donut shop went. It was an old donut shop. Like I said, it, it predates even Duncan's or it predates mm -hmm. even Duncan's at that point. Mm -hmm. It was a great place. It was very, very busy, very busy. Um, I remember, you know, trucks lining up, canteen trucks lining up and coming in and getting their orders to fill their trucks. Convenience stores would come in and they'd get donuts and things like that. Sure. That was a real busy place. And that was what I had growing up in my teen years. Um, but then later, Went to school, be, uh, became a quality engineer, worked in electronics. When my dad uh, sold out to my uncle, he decided he was going to buy a little donut shop that was down the street from their house. And that was Kane's. Mm -hmm. And my dad knew Bob Kane. He, was, he had known him. And, uh, you know, they had paths had crossed. And he said to my mother one night, I'm going to go down and have a cup of coffee with Bob and see how things are going. And Maybe, you know, if you need somebody to help him out one night a week or something like that, just so I can keep busy. Yeah. Down there, and he found out that Bob had sold the donut shop out to a couple of guys that owned Dunkin' Donuts. And they were maintaining the, the store just barely. Uh -huh. And at the same time, I found out that Dunkin's, corporate Dunkin's, told these guys to sell. So my father struck up a deal with these guys. And he and mom purchased the donut shop. 
they had that for, uh, well, right up until 2006. In the meantime, I had gone back there, cleaned the place up while they bought it, stayed there from um, 1988 till 1995. Then I started a catering business at the Gannon Golf Course in Lynn. Mm-hmm. I didn't start it in 95. I started, I should say, in 1990. But then I went up to the Gannon Golf Course in Lynn and took over the, uh, took over the concession that was up there. So I left the donut shop, took the concession over, um, and grew that business uh, from just being like a, a sandwich and hot dog type of thing to doing full dinners and meals uh, to the point where we were going through like 800 pounds of steak tips every week, uh, 600 pounds of turkey tips, and like 300 pounds of, ta- of, of uh, pork tips. And hamburgers, uh, there was like 40 hamburgers came in a case, and I'd go through about 15 cases every week, too. That was just the American-style, you know, pub food type of thing. Absolutely, so, yeah. But, Absolutely. Um, my wife and I got married in 1995, and I had a partner in up there. And I said, you know, I'm going to go over to uh, Italy for a couple of weeks and I'll go to Greece for a couple of weeks during the month of September. And it was the first year we had the, the uh, concession at the golf course. And I said, look, I'm going to go for that month. When I come back, you take the month of October off and I'll run everything in October when I come back. While I was over there in, in Europe, I had the pleasure of walking into a lot of kitchens. Absolutely. And the folks over there would show me how they were making certain dishes that I asked them about. And I came back with a whole repertoire of, of Italian food and Greek food. Mm -hmm. Things that I knew how to make because I grew up in Saugus, which was a predominantly Italian neighborhood at the time. And I saw a lot of my friends, moms, cooking in the kitchen and, you know, everybody be running out to go play football when we were kids. And I was like, yeah, I just want to watch your mother put the lasagna together. Right. Or, you know, who's making cutlets or whatever the case may be. And so I, I'd hang around just to see the techniques that they were using doing certain things. Well, in Europe, I picked up a lot of the different things. I even spent one day at a little pizzeria where the fellow taught me how to make the Neapolitan style pizza dough, which is a lot wetter than American style pizza dough. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just a, it's a different style of dough. Um, and I love, I love pizza, no matter whether it's an American style or Neapolitan, I love it all. I, I don't know anyone who does it at this point. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's a delicious food. Yeah, exactly. Anyhow, get back to the golf course, October. I start practicing a few different dishes getting ready to open up in the springtime for next year, because we usually have the, the winter months off. Sure. No one's golfing out there. In Nobody's weather. golfing. Well, there are a few fanatics who go out with orange balls <laughs> on top of the snow. Yeah. Um, I learned that pretty quick. Uh, <laughs> you know, they'd be knocking on the door in the middle of the winter. You have any hamburgers or anything? And I was like, Oh God. Uh, Can I just put my hands on the stove? <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, I, I launched, uh, yeah, um, the American side of the menu. And then I put a whole Mediterranean side of the menu on. And several years after that, I had friends that were living in Charlestown 
And I kept walking up and down the street from one friend's house to another with my wife at night. Um, and uh, we kept seeing this one storefront that was uh, vacant. Went in, opened up a little Italian restaurant in there. I cleaned the place up, built it all out. Friend of mine gave me a hand doing it. He was a carpenter and came in and we gutted the place and then built it all out in a matter of three months. Wow. And I exposed the tin ceiling that was from the 1890s in there. Got up ladder and I looked like the copper tin man because I yeah. ceiling copper. Yeah. It shined like a new penny. My face also shined like a new penny too. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, so it was, it, it was funny with that. And, and you, you know, you, you recall all that stuff, doing a lot of that stuff yourself when, when you have to go through it. Mm. Opened up and the first year was a little slow. And then people started getting used to the idea of coming down to us. We're across from where the housing projects are on Main Street in Charlestown. And we started getting people from the Navy out coming down. We started getting a lot of people from up in the hill coming in. And next thing I know, we have three-hour waits out the door every wow. night. It was crazy busy. <laughs> where Allison Arnett was the, uh, the, the food reviewer for the Boston Globe. I couldn't even get her in. She, I didn't know it was her, but she was trying to get a seat to come in because they never told you who they were. She sure. was trying to get a seat to come in. And she wrote about it the next week saying, you know, that uh, Paulo's was so busy that I, you know, I couldn't even get a seat. <laughs> I guess that's like a backhanded, it, yeah. it was like a backhanded compliment. Right. And you know what? And, and that drew more, more people in. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, Right after that, I had a group of investors came to me and they said, you're Greek and you know how to cook Italian food like this? I said, yeah. Can you make some Greek food? I said, well, I said, it's a little early, but I usually run the Greek food in the summer months because most people associate Greek food with warm weather. Yeah. Fine. I'll start doing it now. And this was in March. Started making all the Greek food. They were like blown away and amazed. And shortly after that, and this is around 2003, we opened up Meze, which was in City Square in Charlestown. Mm -hmm. It was across from the old Olives. And I think right now, uh, Legal's Oysteria or whatever is in City Square. Yeah. But we opened up Meze to the point where we're doing 900 covers every night. Crazy. And I'm running down the street, putting the Greek fisherman's cap on. Going back down to the Italian restaurant, put my Italian scally cap on, you know, and and change, gotta play the part, right? <laughs> changing my chef's changing my chef coat. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was it was it was a hectic, crazy time. At you know, and at the same time, I went to the Italian Culinary Institute, and I had to cook a dinner for them because they picked me as as the uh, the Italian chef of the year in Boston. So I went and cooked for them, which was an honor, and went to Marshall Fields in Chicago and had to do a roundtable discussion on contemporary Greek food. Now, there are so many Greeks living in Chicago, you could make a small town out of them. Right. It, or a big town. A big town, yeah. <laughs> you know, you go down the street and CVS is written in Greek. Yeah. So, um, you know, and here I am, a guy from Boston, and I'm talking to them about how you make contemporary Greek food. Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know if... You know, they, they, what we were doing, uh, it was different. I was stacking up the Greek salad uh, so that the server could go table side, put a fork in there and slice it, and then mm. it would pop into wedges. 
um, taking calamari and frying calamari, but using all Greek or uh, indigenous ingredients to, to grease and turning those into almost like a, uh, like a Thai chili sauce. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, doing and putting a spin on contemporary Greek food. You know, if somebody wanted to go to like, um, you know, have traditional Greek food, there are a lot of little mom and pop places that are making yiddos and doing things like that in the Boston area. But that's not what I was all about. I didn't want to compete with the little mom and pop places. I wanted to put my my elevation on, on what I perceived was contemporary Greek food, like taking taking pork and smoking it, and then taking different ingredients again, Greek ingredients, whether it's a uh, um, wine that's uh, like a, a Moscato wine from Greece from the island of Samos, and turning that into like a almost a sweet wine sauce with a little bit of honey that was from Greece and and sauteing up some roasted corn, which you find on the streets in Greece. Mm. Have the guys with the grills and they're roasting corn and you can walk down the street and buy a piece of that. So taking all of those aspects and and blending them together and then coming up with a contemporary Greek menu, um, we were crazy busy. And I guess that that lasted right up until 2006. And there's only so much a body can do. I had some creative differences with the partners mm. and they started, you know, uh, escalating a little bit. And I decided I got invited to go to the James Beard house in New York. I did uh, the first Greek meze dinner, which was just from start to finish, all little plates. And they hadn't had anybody that did that in between doing all of that stuff with the restaurants. Again, and dealing with the partners that wanted to run things a little differently. I was also helping out a friend of mine that was former vice president of the Food Network, going in and doing some food styling and helping out with, with uh, some of the different you know tasks that he needed to, to keep that going forward. So I, I got to meet a lot of the different chefs, whether it was Emerald or, or whether it was uh, Ming Tsai or Marianne Esposito, uh, Stellino, a bunch of the different people that were out there at the time, Curtis Akins, Sarah Moulton. I, I worked with a lot of them and, and which was, which was nice. Um, and it was a good experience for me. 2006, I did the James Beard dinner and, um, finally it was just too much. I said, you know, I can't take the, the little creative differences. I'll just leave it like that with the partners. Yeah. And I decided to opt out of the business and take a little bit of time off to kind of rethink what I wanted to do with my life, which lasted a couple of months. <laughs> I figured it wouldn't take long, right? <clears throat> it wouldn't take long. You get itchy. <laughs> so after that happened, I had some offers to go down to Atlanta, chef a Greek restaurant down there, um, go out to Vegas, California, and New York. The New York one was... Uh, was the one that I was really kind of, uh, you know, excited about because New York sure. sort of Boston. Yeah. Know, very, sim- very so similar, forth. very different. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I went to go see my mom and dad and, you know, they were along in years and uh, my father wasn't working at the shop anymore. Just my siblings and my mom. And my father said to me, please don't go down to New York. Right. You stay here and uh, take over the donut shop because I have a pretty decent business acumen. 
And I said, Dad, the only way I'm staying here is if you turn that over to us. Wow. Not going to answer to you or anybody else anymore. Wow. Giving Dad the ultimatum, huh? <laughs> and he turned around, looked at my mother, and he called my bluff. <laughs> Call the lawyer and sign everything over to the kids. So we struck an agreement that I would, you know, make sure they got a paycheck every week and so forth. And um, at that point, I laid the plans to uh, expand Canes. Took it from a little 1,500 square foot facility, um, grew it into 3,600 square feet. We purchased the house next door, and that enabled us to grow. And shortly after that, um, I was approached by a group of investors to go in and open up a location in the downtown area in Boston. Mm -hmm. We opened up that location in Boston and we had some issues with some of the neighbors uh, complaining that we shouldn't be using that as a commissary because it's in a residential area. What, it, what was it? Did it Saugus smell so good? At, at they, were complain, they were complaining about the Saugus location uh, being in a residential area and we shouldn't use that as a commissary for the Boston store. Mm. So after talking with the partners in town, I said, look, I'm going to find another location somewhere out on route one. And lo and behold, I was doing a catering event for Ernie Bach has a, uh, a fundraiser for uh, kids with music. It's called music drives us. So I went to the event and I was approached by uh, a gentleman, Mike Barsamian to come in and take a look at a, piece of real estate here on route one that was being developed Essex landing. And lo and behold, they wanted, they had a spot. They wanted to put us in there and told the partners, I found a spot. I told them where it was. And uh, next thing you know, we started doing the development, just the Delios family, not the partners. We started mm -hmm. the development and we opened up Kane's route one. Yeah. I mean, and uh, you know, it's, this has been, uh, I want to say very successful because we've had that drive-through during the COVID period. Absolutely. Absolutely. What we were able to do was, um, you know, I had set them the wheels in motion to do uh, online ordering and we were ready to go a couple of months after the COVID um, was announced. We would have been ready to go a couple mm -hmm. of months. Let me just put it that way. Well, when I found out the COVID was uh, going to be, coming out with all those restrictions and that was like around March 17th or something yep. to that effect. Yeah. Called up our web guy and I said, look, where are you with the online ordering? And he said, it's all done. I just got a couple of little minor things to do. I said, fine. Can you launch it Monday? <laughs> and he was like, yeah. So just as it was all coincidental, just as the COVID hit, we we were all lined up and ready to go. Mm -hmm. And again, it was, uh, you know, through the grace of God or whatever, it was just coincidental that we, we had everything ready to go. And we turned the online ordering. We started doing in uh, locations that didn't have to drive through. We started doing some curbside pickup. Um, and it was fortunate for us. We were able to weather the storm. In the same token, with being successful, you have to learn how to be resourceful because staff that had children started bowing out. Yeah. Now what do you do? You've got people coming in, buying donuts, but you don't have staff to work it. 
Right. So we had to uh, jockey that whole problem around and figure out which way uh, we were going to go and how we were going to do it. And the easiest way for me was reduction of hours from the bottom and the top and stay open the bulk hours when people are coming in the store. And like when I say bottom and top, I mean the early morning and the later in the afternoon. Right. And uh, that's the way you got to look at it. And we were able to weather the storm and we continue to stay weathering the storm that way and operate that way. It's been, uh, it's been a, a good uh, recipe for success. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I kind of go back to the, the origin of Canes and how it's, you know, since 1955, you know, a family run mom and pop donut shop, you know, uh, deli, uh, diner, what have you might not be as uh, few and far between as they are today, right? You see kind of in the in 2021, a lot more larger corporation restaurants, etc. How has Cane's really been able to kind of stand amongst the pack of these larger corporations, whether it be Dunkin' Donuts on every street corner, or even just the, you know, the, 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 the traditional donut shop but in in essence it's just a corporate corporate donut shop well i think when duncan's started its expansion in the uh 80s the focus went from making donuts to opening up more duncan's Mm -hmm. then they changed again that they changed the focus from being a donut shop to more of a coffee centric business 80% 80% of their sales are beverages. Right. Donuts. Right. Canes is just the opposite. <laughs> donuts and maybe 20%, maybe 20% in beverages. <laughs> um, a lot more money to be made pouring uh, water onto beans. That's true. <laughs> a lot more money to be made. So they are more profitable. For us, it's harder to make the buck because we're, we're still essentially a bakery. Right. Um, despite how busy we are, the profit margin is not as much as it is at a Duncan's. Um, now, Duncan's over the years managed to put out of business a lot of the little mom and pop bakeries. They would open up next to a mom and pop donut shop. They'd open up to a mom and pop bakery. Um, they really, I have a friend of mine that really took a tucking uh, when it came to bagels, when Duncan's decided you know, they were going to have the, uh, basically like a, uh, what do they call that from the old Western days when two guys would, you know, face off. Oh, a duel? A duel, yeah. <laughs> they took their, uh, the old little baker they had with the black mustache and uh, <laughs> he ha- he uh, lined up with a uh, guy that was supposedly like an independent bagel guy and they paced off and they turned and the bagel guy went to go bite into his and it was like a like a real chew, because that's what bagels always were. Right. Duncan's, you know, I, I forget the baker's name. It was like Henry the Baker or whatever. He <laughs> and he just pulls us apart like like it's nothing. And Duncan's now has bagels. Well, essentially, they created a roll with a hole. That's what their bagels are. <laughs> always, if you went into a traditional uh, bagel shop, you know, old Jewish bagel recipe, they're supposed to be chewy. Yep. Grew up on them. Yeah. You know, what they have right now, and, you know, I feel bad, your generation. You kids know that. That's <laughs> roll with a hole. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's not a bagel by any sense or any stretch of the imagination. 
I love it. And, and uh, you know, it is what it is, but they managed to destroy uh, just because of their growth pattern and the way they would go in and cannibalize business in neighborhoods. They managed to destroy a lot of the mom and pop bakeries that were out there. So now what you're seeing today, and I would, I would like to take kind of credit for some of it, because back in 2007, I took my abilities as a chef and came in and started coming up with what we take a look at as, as the, the modern gourmet style donut. Yeah. And crafted style donut. And you see a lot of places, especially like in the Boston area, there's Blackbird, there's Union. There's a handful of great little donut shops out there, you know, and I think that, you know, when people copy you, you should be flattered. And I know a lot of places have. They've taken what we've worked hard and long at, the the big boxes, the gourmet-style donuts with the different toppings on there and so forth. Sure. That we were doing, like I say, back in 2007, right around then, 2008. It was right in that that winter period when we started crafting those kind of things. Um, I'd like to say that, you know, basically that stuff was born at Cane's. Yeah. You know, I, I did most of it myself, but I did have the help of a couple of family members that took a look at some stuff and they said, well, Paul, you know, why don't we on your Snickers donut, put a little bit of caramel on there. What do you think about that? And I was like, you know what, that, that works great. Doesn't sound half bad. (laughs) It was, it was a, it was like a a family effort coming up with all of that, but it was something that I, I brought into the business and we grew it. We grew it. And all the shops have opened since then. Now people, your generation, have the ability to try what a real donut is supposed to taste like because there are more than just canes out there. There's, like I said, a handful of other shops out there that are doing a great job making donuts. And for me, that's what it's all about. Don't call it a donut. Don't call it a bagel, you know, unless you're making the real thing. Agreed. It's a roll with a hole. It's a roll with glaze on it. I love it. That doesn't taste like like what it's supposed to be. You know, people ask me nowadays, you know, uh, for a bagel, for example, you know, who's got the best bagels in the Boston area? I like bagel Soros over in Cambridge. I think they mm-hmm. make bagels around. It's got that little bit of like almost like a sourdough kind of thing. You toast it. It gets a little bubbling on the outside of the skin. You know, to me, that's the way that's the way I knew bagels. You know, that's the way I grew up with bagels. I think they do a great job with it. Donuts, I still think that we're king with the donuts. I think, you know, hard pressed for somebody to to come up and, and try to beat us with donuts. I know we've gone in head-to-head competitions with some of the uh, the other new guys around. Sure. But, and my heart goes out to them. I'm grateful that they're doing what they're doing because it awakens people to what a good donut is supposed to taste like. And they do make good donuts. But we've, we've won those competitions hands down, too. For so, sure. Will continue to be the OG of donut making. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And we're proud of that. You know, we're going to be 66 years old this year. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of, um, of of donuts that we produce, uh, I would say, without you know revealing numbers and things like that, I would say that uh, there isn't anybody out there that makes as many donuts in a day as we do. We're going to take a quick break from this interview to hear from our new sponsors over at IPS Serve and Water Sports. This new partnership I'm so stoked about, IPS Serve 
is an exclusive water sport complex located right on Long Lake in the beautiful lake region of Maine. They offer personalized instruction for a variety of different water sports, including wake surfing, water skiing, and many more. Originally from Westford, Massachusetts, founder and world champion wake surfer Ian Scott found his love and passion for water sports at a very early age. He's dedicated to sharing his years of action sport wisdom with his clients and unlocking that true potential in people that they didn't even realize they had. Guys, entering a new element, especially the water, for many people can be an intimidating journey. So IPS Surf is here to provide a safe and specialized instruction to ensure their customers leave with a smile on their face and that feeling of accomplishment. With professional and qualified instructors, best-in-class towboats, and equipment IPS Surf is more than ready to host you and your crew out on the lake this summer. It's just two and a half hours north of Boston. And to show our appreciation to our listeners, IPS Surf will be offering two very, very sick packages. We're going to have the normal guy package and we're going to have the lazy eye package. So let me tell you about these. All right. So the normal guy package, you're going to get 20% off a two hour individual session. So you can bring yourself and one of your friends with an IPS surf uh, instructor. This is more for the people that are really have an appetite to learn. The normal guy package gives you the best opportunity to focus and improve your skills out on the water. This two hour session will allow you for that ultimate one-on-one time with a professional instructor centralized on your development. Now, the lazy eye package. This is gonna be your squad package. This is gonna give you 20% off a full day. That's six hours out on the lake with your squad. You could bring eight, nine, 10 of your closest friends. It's a perfect way to get the whole crew out there enjoying the magic of what IPS Surf has to offer. The lazy eye session will include everything you need for an exceptional day out on the lake with over seven different water sports to choose from. Guys, seven different water sports. You're gonna be able to mix and match with your favorite activities for the perfect session you have been dreaming about. We have all been dreaming about what next summer is gonna look like. This is an excellent idea for any family or friends outings, birthdays, it's just the perfect day out on the lake. And if you haven't seen any footage of like what IPS Surf has to offer, let me try and paint this picture. So one of the sports that they offer is called wake surfing, which is one of the coolest things that I've ever seen down on the lake. It's an endless wave created by the boat, and it basically allows you to surf this like clean and customizable wave with nothing directly attaching you to the boat. So they offer this like, it's just this like, you're you're surfing, like I'm a SoCal kid, you're out there surfing, but you're out on the lake. They also have your favorites, including like water skiing and wakeboarding. They also offer more of those like technical sports for more of our advanced folks looking to step up their adventure game here, which is like barefoot skiing. You've seen those videos on on Instagram, wake kiting and surface latest phenomenon, hydrofoiling. So don't just take my word for it. Go visit IPS Surf and Water Sports up in Brigton, Maine, just two and a half hours from Boston to see for yourselves what the hype is all about. Go follow them on Instagram at IPS Surf and go over to IPSSurf.com to book those sessions. Now back to the interview. I'd, I'd agree. I mean, I've I've been able to to have some donuts from you guys a couple times and, and quality is definitely your 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 base, right? And and you've 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 pride yourself on sourcing locally, buying locally for the ingredients that you use. And I think one other aspect that a lot of restaurants, bakeries, donut shops, what have you that haven't picked up on yet that you picked up on right away is gluten-free. 
And this is something that I take very personally. My girlfriend who has celiac disease has a hard time enjoying treats like donuts. But I will say with canes and the gluten-free that you guys are doing, I'm usually the, because I don't have celiac disease. So I usually am like the, the gluten tester mm-hmm. and making sure that it doesn't taste like, a, you know, like a regular donut or a regular piece of bread. You guys, you guys have stumped me almost a couple of times. I, I'll try the gluten-free and be like, I, I don't know. But I know you guys are, are very gluten-safe and gluten-sensitive. Why, like, why haven't more restaurants picked up on this? And what made you guys decide this is something we, should, we need to be well, doing? I could tell you that um, back in 2009, right around then, was the end of 2009 going into 2010, if my memory serves me correctly. We had a family came in the shop in Lincoln Avenue and it was a mom and dad and two boys and a, and a daughter. A little girl was screaming and crying her eyes out. Mm-hmm. My sister Maria was working out front. She came in the back and she grabbed some frosting and she says, you gotta do something about like, like pissed off at me, <laughs> do something about this. And I'm like, what? She's the other chef in the family. And I'm like, okay. So I go up front and I said, how you doing, honey? What's the matter? I want a donut. And the mother explained to me, and Maria was there, you know, she explained to us that she can't have gluten. I really mm-hmm. didn't know about a lot of the gluten intolerance and things like that then. And no one did in 2008 and 2009. Well, that was the thing too. It was such a new thing that people had these gluten intolerances. So... I started looking online, researching as best as I could. And there was limited information out there, but there was still information out there. And Amazon started getting a lot of my money because I started ordering a lot of ingredients. Took me five years at home because I have a little fry kettle at home Mm -hmm. to develop the recipe that we currently use today. And we're able to grow from just an old-fashioned uh, recipe, so like an old-fashioned glazed donut, yeah, to a uh, devil's food chocolate donut, and we now have twelve varieties of donuts, gluten-free. You know, you can come in here, and you can get a maple bacon gluten-free donut. You can get a butter crunch chocolate donut, or a frosted donut. There are cinnamon, so. I kind of felt like people were missing the boat, not not really, you know, paying attention to what, you know, folks out there that have celiac are going through. And we dedicated a portion of the kitchen over on Lincoln Avenue to solely making that gluten-free donut over there in that, in that portion of the kitchen. There's no flour or any other product that goes into that kitchen area. Right. Um, Because we wanted to make sure that we take as many precautions during the manufacture as possible. Um, And then we ship the donuts off to our other two locations from there. Um, So they made in, in that facility separate from any of the other donuts. Like I said, we portioned off the kitchen and, I just want parents to know that they don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem that comes in 
is making sure, and we've had this issue and we try to stay on top of it, um, with staff, change your gloves, use a different tissue, don't touch the donuts, you know, make sure that you pack them separately. And what happens is a lot of times people will come in here and they'll say, just put them all in the same box. And they don't understand. Well, I'm buying donuts for Mary's daughter and she's gluten-free. Put them in the same box. Don't worry. Well, they can't go in the same box. Right. They're not supposed to go in the same box. But what that does to my staff when they keep doing that, they're like, oh, well, if, if, if they go in the same box, then I guess it's not that, that serious. Right. But it is because it can have really adverse, deadly effects on some people. For sure. Absolutely. And, and uh, so sometimes the customer that we're making it for, you know, is, is getting a treat and the person who's buying it for them doesn't understand how serious that is. I agree. We've instructed the staff over here and we continue to monitor, continue to push it. When you're touching gluten-free, when you're packing gluten-free, separate, separate, separate containers. I love it. You guys are, you guys are, you guys are doing the best at it for sure. Well, we try the best we can. And, and again, we're not a gluten-free company. Right. Oh, but we, we, we try the best that we can. And we try the hottest that we can try to make sure that we maintain that integrity. Absolutely. And so for someone who is listening to this podcast and hopefully craving a Cane's donut right now, and hasn't been able to get out to Saugus or the Boston location, what would be the first donut you would want them to try coming into Cane's Donuts? Well, there's two of them. Okay. <laughs> and don't ask a father to pick which child right. he loves. Because <laughs> it's not fair. It's not fair. I love all my, my children like donuts. I love them all equally. Um, for me, it's a plain donut because that really is what started the whole industry. Mm-hmm. The second one would be the honey glazed. Now, people come in and say, oh, can I have a glazed donut? Well, we call them honey dipped. I know I just said honey glazed, but actually what we refer to them as honey dipped. Now, let me explain to your audience what the difference is. A plain donut has the nutmeg, the cinnamon, a little bit of mace, all folded into the batter. It's a batter. Now, that batter gets cut and we can cook it right away. A honey dip donut is a yeast-based donut. We have to mix it, leaven it, knock it down, mix it again. Excuse me, not mix it again. Uh, fold it again, you know, and these sort of things. Then, almost like a pizza dough, you know, when you make pizza dough from scratch? Yeah. Wait about two, three, four hours, let that thing grow the right way? Okay. Similar process, but even more intense. We have to fold in fresh eggs. We've got to fold in honey in there to help the leavening agent, which is the yeast, to help it grow. All right. Now, we've got our dough ready. We've cut it. We fry it. A glaze that we make, and that glaze is honey, actual honey, from right up in the North Shore here. Mm-hmm. It's it's a bee company. It's Crystal Bee Company. The, the honey is the honey glaze is all based on that that honey. So not only is it local honey, but also if you're familiar with honey, if you eat something and you're from this area and it's got honey in it, you're also getting basically the pollen. 
that's in that honey that builds up your immunity <laughs> to, to the to the pollens that are in the air. So I don't like to say that donuts are, you know, a health food because they're certainly not. <laughs> we try to use these ingredients, and I think that ours are a little bit better for you than others. Hey, you I, know, we're not we're not cooking the ingredients out of the honey. So you're still getting the effects of that going in there. I, you know, the, the philosophy is trying to use as much fresh and local ingredients as possible. And this is something that was handed down from dad mm -hmm. from Greece. And when you needed salt, you went to the guy that was near the ocean and you grabbed the salt because that guy collected it off of the rocks. Right. You know, you needed honey. You went to the guy that had the beehives and you grabbed the honey or you had your own beehive. And you grabbed honey from the bees. And the same thing with a lot of things. You know, eggs, you try to use fresh local. So my dad always had this, this philosophy about, you know, keep your neighbors in business and they're going to keep you in business. Support them, they'll support you. And it's what really simple. And in 2007, I brought that same philosophy that I was using that dad instilled in us when we were kids. And brought it into the business and really tweaked it even more mm -hmm. so that as much as possible, we can use everything that's fresh and local. We'll take even our chocolate. We use the Swiss chocolate, but we also blend in Taza chocolate, which is made over in some of them. You know, the, the dairy comes from uh, pure country up in Peabody. Mm -hmm. Flowers mill local for us and everything. And I'm sure you know all this. And I'm sure your listeners are savvy enough to take a look at, at the cane site if they, you know. Um, but we try to do as much fresh and local as possible. I want to feel good about watching you bring a, you know, your child into the store and giving them the indulgence. And that's what a donut is. It's a little pleasurable indulgence. I want to feel good about you giving them a donut and not, you know, sit there and worry about, you know, what chemicals are in there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You want chemicals, go to one of the big guys. Yeah. You want you want something that can be identified with, come to Canes. I love it. I love it. And if you, if you're out of your last Claritin or Zyrtec, looks like a Canes donut might be the best allergy pill that you can get, right? With the, you with know? the honey. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There Could you be. go. <laughs> now, if it's not, at least tell yourself that. Right? Yeah, that's that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. But <laughs> another another aspect that has obviously seen an increase in the restaurant business and the food business here in this pandemic is delivery and delivery through through uh, through these delivery apps. And I was actually listening to you on another show, and it cracked me up because it was all too true. These, these, these millennials, these Gen Zers, I am a Gen Zer or millennial, so I will fall into this category, but we're lazy. We want things delivered to us. We won't even walk downstairs next door if we live in the apartment building to next door to Cane's Donuts. How has these delivery apps had an impact on business? And is it really doing good for the business or more so hurting the business in the long run here? All right. Um, let me say that it's great that it helps to get your name out there and market to a lot of people and it exposes you to a even broader, wider audience. Mm. What this does 
is allows you to sit home in your condo apartment instead of walking down the stairs if you're in Boston and getting the donuts. It allows you to have an Uber driver walk up the stairs, right? Or jump on an elevator and bring them up to you, and you right. don't get out of your PJs. <laughs> there in bed working on your laptop or whatever, and know that you've got the donuts right there. Right. And a hot cup of coffee coming your way, too. <laughs> now, what it does to the businesses is horrific. We enjoy the business, but the 30, sometimes 35% that they are taking right off the top in this COVID environment yeah. is truly... Uh, the only word that comes to mind is screwing the businesses. Mm-hmm. Now the consumer is able to get the product, but the poor guy that's really hurting in a restaurant, a sandwich shop, a donut shop, trying to make sure that we're paying people a fair wage, taking care of health benefits, giving people adequate vacations, sick time, all of these things associated with running a business today. Um, and then you got to turn around and give 30% of the sale right off the top to these companies. Um, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to navigate the waters. It really, really is hard. So we've enjoyed the ability to have people do the online ordering and come and do the customer pickup which enables us to, to keep what we're charging. Mm-hmm. And um, I started early on before anybody tried to regulate any of this, try to pay people a fair wage from day one. Yeah. I need to wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, you know what? The 60 or so people that work for me and their families their little children mm-hmm. are able to put food on the table and they have health care that they can bring their kids to a doctor. I didn't need any government regulation. I don't need government regulation for any of that. What I needed was customers to understand that, yes, we charge a little bit more for our product. But in the end, you're not just paying for product. You're paying for that woman behind the counter who's got three or four kids at home, mm-hmm. guy that's working behind, making the donuts over here, that he's got three or four kids at home, you're paying for them to be able to put health insurance in, in into their families and be able to take little Johnny or Susie when they're sick to a doctor. That's what it comes down to, or to a dentist. It's not always about, oh, I can make a donut for this, or I can make a donut for that. It's not about that. What it's about is trying to treat everybody humanely and fairly and make sure that as, as one of the owners of this business, that I'm a good steward to my employees, not just a boss. Like I've always believed man is here as a steward to the land and to the animals well, as an owner, you have to be a good boss. You have to be a steward to the business. And in with that, you have to be good to your employees. You have to treat them, you know, in a way that they're able to not only make a living, 
but they're able to take care of the loved ones that they have at home. So you're responsible for all of that. And I always believe that you, you are, you know, as, as, as has been said in the past, you are your brother's keeper. Mm-hmm. And that's all there is, it comes down to. So yeah, you know, we get a few bucks extra for the donuts, but it's not the cost of the flour and the, and the donut. It's the cost of all the other things that are associated with the business. Health insurance is not cheap, but I have to pass the cost on and in, in, into the product cost when we sell it. Right. And the ingredients that we use, fresh local. Listen, I want to make sure that dairy farmer that I that I buy the the dairy from, he's still working. Or the the uh, the organic eggs that we're using. I want to make sure that that guy's still in business. So I'll pay a few pennies more. Yeah, right. it translates into a higher cost of donut, but I know what your children are eating. I know what's going on. And I know that the guy that's working behind the line or the woman that's working behind the line, they don't have to sit there and worry about what their child is going through at home because they've got health care. That's more important. Or they were able to put breakfast on the table for the kid. That's, that means something to me. Absolutely. I hope that that means something to the customers too. That was in there that they know that they're being supportive. Now, when it comes to the delivery services, I lose that extra money mm-hmm. to pay those benefits with. That's the problem I have with the delivery services. If they would only cut it back a little bit and, 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 or if they need to, if somebody wants something delivered that bad, tack on a couple of dollars, yeah. a dollar bill onto the order this way here, you can make sure that, you know, I'm sure if somebody's sitting at home and they want it delivered, they're going to, they're going to pay for the delivery. Yeah, I agree. I think I think this generation has seen like, you know, a, a, the kind of the we don't really care mentality of like a delivery fee. Like, a, if you would just get in your car and drive to Canes in you know in the Boston location in the Saugus location, it's you know you're paying maybe a dollar for gas depending on where you live, and you know it, it's like, but you you you're not paying the twenty dollar delivery fee or whatever it is, but it's just kind of this we don't care and like. Just, I mean, going off of what you said, and if this didn't inspire you to go to Canes and, and experience it for yourself, then I don't know what what will. It's the it's the hospitality that you guys have. It's the customer experience and the customer service that you don't get from a, a guy knocking on your apartment door, going, "Here's your food." Well, so, <laughs> you're right about that. I'll also say the reason why you'll get that. Ex- that experience with the hospitality and the customer service. And we make mistakes. We make mistakes all the time. Right. We're only human. But the reason why you'll, the majority of the time, you won't get those mistakes and you will get customer service and hospitality is because of the benefits and things that we're able to do for our employees. And basically it's, it's our greater family here at, at the, at the, the stores at Cane's. Because of longevity. We have people that have been working for us for over 20 years. Mm. Because they know they don't have to go looking for another job when they're able to take care of their family properly. And they're able to have benefits. So what does that mean? It allows us the ability to have consistency and quality in the product. And when you try to sit there and say, let me shortchange people a dollar here and a dollar there. You're going to get people jumping ship all the time. When you don't turn around and offer health benefits to people, 
they're going to leave to a place that they can get some health benefits because they have to have a peace of mind to know when, you know, their child at home has got a headache or some type of an ache that they can take that child to the doctor. Right. And it's important. People need to take a look at the humanity of running and doing business today. That's, that's what they need to look at. And I'm not, I'm not the one that comes up with this philosophy. This came from my father. It was instilled in us when we were kids. My father always was the kind of guy um, when he had the donut shop in Lynn. If he knew one of the customers that was coming into the shop was out of work, dad would think nothing of bringing groceries over to that person's house. And it was a valuable lesson that we learned. At his uh, funeral, when he passed, we had lines of people, like probably, I would say, like 2,000 feet long, outside wow. the funeral home. That's how many people were waiting in line. We didn't stop. Um, and my father touched a lot of souls by doing that. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we were supposed to open up the doors like it, it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and we started at 1 o'clock on we didn't take a break till 11 o'clock at night. Incredible. It was incredible. So it just, my, my point to this is you're always going to remember where you come from and you're always going to try to treat everybody the way you'd want to be treated. It's real important. It's to me, that's the best business acumen that anybody could ever have. I agree. 100%. And Paul, this has been an absolute blast and I really appreciate you coming on. We have one final question for you that we ask all of our guests. And I think it's the perfect segue here. You've done so much for the community of of the greater Boston area and you still have so much more to give, but if you were to write your autobiography today, what would be the title of it and why? Um, My autobiography. The Baker's Son. Just real simple. The Baker's yeah. Son. I think, and just going back to the 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 qualities that your father has instilled in your family, and I know I, I feel the same exact way when you're telling those stories about your dad and and you know and your grandpa. I'm, I was the same way. I think just the the values that you get from your your parents and your grandparents can really help carry you throughout your life. It. it you need to hold on to all of that stuff, but share the experiences with as many people as you can. Because one thing that's lacking today, I think that, um, you know, a lot of the kids, um, whether it's good or bad because of um, the way society is today and the way it's become, I think it's become too sanitized. Um, And I don't, say that you know relative to you know chemicals or whatever right (laughs) relative to the way society is you know we used to be a little bit more colorful the metaphors everything that was talked about everything that was done today everything has got to fit inside of a box and god forbid you know you deviate from that box I think sharing the older experiences that people of of my generation have, I think help out your generation a lot more um, because you can understand that not everything has got to be inside that box. 
there's there's a lot of room outside of the box that that uh, is not empty air. Mm. Our stories there. So what you hear inside the box is rather limited, but all the stories that are outside, all the life experiences that are outside, you know, I think I think those are things that you know I can I can try to help to bring. I think that kids nowadays need to sit down with their grandparents and they need to sit down and talk to their grandparents, have these conversations about what was it like growing up. We should talk to grandparents and find out how things were, what they experienced, what they did years ago, whether it was workplace, growing up, what it was like to walk to school every day. Yeah. Rather than have somebody drive you and drop you off. Mm-hmm. What it was like to go past the neighbor's house and all of a sudden the dog came out and wanted to bite your fanny. <laughs> that type of thing. Yeah. These are things that the kids need to know about. I agree 100% because I, I, I think it's that type of generation is, is definitely, we're starting to lose that generation. And I think those stories are, are super important because- They are important. They are important. And that's why like, you know, people sit and gravitate towards these movies you know, that are, that are at the cinema or on TV or whatever the case may be that deal with, you know, uh, years ago, like in the 1920s or things mm. like that, you know, there's a movie that I watched a short while back. It was, it was, um, with, uh, Viggo Morganson and, and, uh, I forget the actor's name. Uh, it was, uh, the green book. Oh yeah. 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 Great, 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 great movie. Yeah. What is his name? Lahershal Ali. Ali. Mahershal Ali. Great, yeah, yeah. Great actor. But what they did was they showed what was going on. Mm-hmm. It's so sanitized today mm-hmm. that kids don't understand this stuff really existed. Right. And how we should grow from it, not forget about it. If you wiped things out like that, and and don't talk about things like that. And the, okay, let's brush it under the table. Right. Oh, pull it out in the open. Talk about it. Embrace it. Make it part of society. These are the things that happen. This is life. This is life. Sorry, it's not a you know great part of life, but it's life. Yeah. It's life. These things happen. Agreed. We need to we need to know that. You know, I grew up in an era where Archie Bunker was on TV, and the stuff that was going on in that and that show would never be allowed on TV. Don Rickles, one of the best comedians in the world, he would never be allowed to say what he said. Mm-hmm. But he poked fun at all the arrogant sayings that we and, and, and ignorant sayings that we would we would cast upon each other. But he poked fun at it. Mm-hmm. And I think through some humor, you were able to to understand each other a little bit. That's just my last bit of philosophy for you. No, Paul, this was absolutely an absolute blast. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of this with us. And and like I said, I will definitely be at Keynes this weekend. Well, so I'm, I'll, I'll definitely come and see you. But again, really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best. And we'll definitely keep in touch. All right. Take care. Take care. Beautiful day. All right. All right. All righty.
So I hope you enjoyed that great interview with Paul Delios. Again, huge thank you to Paul and the whole team at Kane's Donuts for A, uh, coming on the show, but B, making the best donuts in Boston. So be sure if you're in the greater Boston area, if you're in Saugus, Massachusetts, go on over to Kane's for a life-changing experience. The staff is incredible. The donuts are impeccable. Uh, it's an, it's a great experience. Uh, we have some more Boston-themed uh, interviews coming up later in the week. Uh, as I come to almost two years of living here, I've really enjoyed getting to meet so many great people from Boston. So we have actually, I'll kind of tease next week's episode here. We have another Boston foodie coming on the show. Very, very, very popular um, food Instagram from the Boston area. Let's see if you guys can figure it out. If you think you know, let me know on Instagram if you think you have an idea of who the guest is going to be. But as always, I really appreciate all the listeners, especially if you're new here. Thank you so much for coming in and finding this uh, this hilarious podcast. To me, it's hilarious because you're, you know, I did not think that, A, we would be 34 episodes deep, but B, uh, be streamed in, I think, like 35 countries now. That's That's ridiculous. That's crazy. Thank you so much. If you've been sticking around since episode one, you're the best. Uh, go follow us on Instagram at normalguylazyeye. I'll stop with the shameless plugs. I'll see you guys next Wednesday. <laughs>